Hello and welcome back to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie. Can I start by saying a massive thank you to the thousands of listeners that tuned it into the podcast while I took a break from recording and editing. I highly value your support and you are the reason I keep working hard to produce this podcast. Just before we jump into this week's episode, can I just say that if you're interested in sponsoring future episodes of Becoming Educated in some way, please get in touch using the details within the show notes. I would love your support. Now, back to the episode. This week, I am joined for the first of the Teaching and Learning Lead series by Rachel Ball. Rachel is Assistant Principal at Co-op Academy Walkton, and we discuss how she is leading evidence-informed teaching across our school. In this episode, we explore the following and so much more. Why it is important for the Teaching and Learning Lead to be evidence-informed? Why it is important that there is a vision for teaching and learning in a school? How Rachel has helped create a shared language around teaching and learning. How Rachel has made engaging with evidence accessible for all staff. And how Rachel has optimised performance management to show that staying evidence-informed is important at her school. I loved exploring Rachel's role as a teaching and learning lead and I was particularly impressed by the resource she's creating using Google Classroom. I'm certainly going to steal that idea in some form. So without further ado, let's dive right into my conversation with Rachel Ball. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on to Becoming Educated this evening for the first of my Teaching and Learning Lead series. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Darren. Thanks so much for having me. Um, very nervous, but excited to be talking to you tonight. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I've followed you on, on Twitter for, for quite a long, long time, and, and I really enjoy um, reading your interactions and so on. And, and thank you so much for responding to my to my call to have Teaching and Learning Leads speak to me about what we do, I'm super excited to to tuck into that. But before we do that and get going into the meat and bones of the discussion, can you share with us, with us and the listeners just a little bit about you and your current role? Um, right. So a little bit of history about me first. So um, I spent most of my teenage years in London and came to Manchester to do a history degree um, and went straight into teaching um, at the age of 21. Um, did my PGC at MMU and um, immediately joined the school that I'm currently at in Salford. So I've actually been at the same school for almost 21 years, which is um, sometimes when I, I think about it like that, I think, oh, my goodness, where is that time gone? Um, but I absolutely love it. Um, as soon as I started teaching, I just knew that it was absolutely right for me um, and really just worked my way up. Um, so I became head of history. I then took on some voluntary additional roles and then um, a few temporary SLT posts. And then I was made permanent assistant principal for teaching and learning in the summer of 2019. Um, So I teach in quite a large school in Salford. We've got 1,500 students. um, And my job is in charge of teaching and learning and CPD. So that means I do everything from um, organising professional development, supporting teachers, um, working with newly qualified teachers, um, 
getting to read lots and lots of teaching and learning books, which I'm really passionate about. And I honestly just think it's the best job in the world. Um, it's not always easy. And there are days when I sort of have to really dig deep um, and remember why I'm doing it. But most of the time, I just absolutely love it. Um, and I'm also still really passionate about my first love, which is history. And I think sometimes I think once you get an SLT role, there's an element of forgetting your subject. And I am really passionate about not doing that. And I still really try and keep up to date with the history community um, and keep reading history books and try and merge my love of teaching and learning with the history as well. Um, so in 2020, I then started a blog. Um, it was actually during the first lockdown. I must have been bored um, because I, and I think up to that point, I'd sort of always felt extreme imposter syndrome. And I think during lockdown, you just kind of think, right, well, I'm just going to go for it. It's all online. What, you know, what harm can it do? And just absolutely fell in love with writing as well. And um, so now I have this blog that I do when I feel I've got something to say. So it's not a weekly thing. It's just kind of when the urge takes me to write. Um, and that's led to some fantastic opportunities like um, speaking to you. So, yeah, I, I feel like I do a really exciting and enjoyable job. Um, yeah. Now, certainly as someone that does the job, I can definitely echo many of that. But it must be so fascinating having been at the same school for, we said, 21 years working your way up. It must be it must be such a wonderful insight um, into school life, especially as you've worked your way up from working mm. in the classroom to being a principal. How have you found that experience? Um, the school has changed a lot in the time that I've been there. Um, we have academised. Um, I've obviously seen different leadership teams. Um, I, I basically have grown up at the school um, and I've seen lots of teachers come, lots of teachers go, lots of ideas come, lots of ideas go. Um, but at the heart of it, I absolutely just love the school. I love the community. Um, the students are just amazing. Um and the time just goes. Um, every time I sort of thought about moving on and a new, a new challenge, the time just hasn't been right or um, an opportunity has come uh, become available at the school um, itself, which has meant that I haven't moved on. Um, and I think I'm definitely never saying never. Um, you know, I'm sure in the future a different opportunity will arise. But um I feel I have done as much learning at the school that I've been at. I think sometimes there's a criticism of people that stay at the same school that you don't get as much, you don't learn as much or not as much variety. But actually, because I've seen the school I'm at change so much while I've been there, I do think I've learned a lot. Um, And also engaging with the community on Twitter and in education generally, it's not like I'm buried at my school and not engaged with anything else that's going on. So... No, certainly there's a lot to be said for staying at um, a school and growing with it. And it's fascinating that mm-hmm. you about how you've grown up at the school that you, in that time mm-hmm. uh, and so on. But it's so fascinating to hear that story and I'm looking to interview about you. So let's let's kick into that and talk about what your role is. So can I ask you, why is it important that you as... T- I think the first thing to say is that I have seen firsthand the damage that gimmicks or quick fixes can do in a school. Um, I, you know, I've lived that experience um, from lethal mutations to just somebody seeing something on Twitter and thinking that sounds good. Let's do it. Or reading an Ofsted report and thinking, well, this school did this and Ofsted have praised it. So we should do it here. Um, and that is definitely not what I'm about. 
um, when I first started in my role as assistant principal, um, just, just shortly afterwards, the school got a new head teacher. And um, between us, we were very much adamant that one of the first things that we were going to do was to debunk the myths, um, because that's something that had never really been um, done with um, the teaching staff at my school. Um, somebody to stand up and say, we're not going to do it like this because that's not what the evidence suggests is going to help our students learn. Um, and I actually had quite a big job to persuade staff that any changes that I did make or that the head teacher made would always be evidence informed um, and wouldn't be just, oh, let's try this and six months down the line, we'll change it to something else. And actually, that's probably been one of the biggest things I've worked on in my job um, over the last couple of years to really build that culture of if we do introduce something new, which actually we don't do very often, because I really believe when you introduce something new, you have to work at it and embed it. And that doesn't happen overnight. You know, when I look at something like our no written feedback policy, um, our no marking policy, we use a, a feedback policy instead. You know, that's something we've been working on for three years. Um, it, it takes a long, long time to embed. But it really was a big job to persuade our staff that, um, there's no quick fixes, there's no gimmicks, and everything we do is going to be based on what research said works, the best bets, if you like. Um, I also think that there's so much we can do um, as teachers. Um, teachers are incredibly busy. We need to make sure that what we spend our time, what we spend our time doing are the right things. We need to do the things that are going to make the most difference. Um, I think it's Kat Scott who she said um, um, to reduce the guesswork about what works and why. We need to take that away from people. There's no guesswork. It's just about the best bets. Um, I also think the why when you introduce something, the why of when you are introducing it is so, so crucial to get staff on board, to get staff to trust you. You have to be credible in the job um, that I'm in. And therefore, to share the why, you have to share the evidence base. So it all starts with that. Um, and I think also one of, I, I do believe one of the key attributes of someone in the position that I'm in is to be passionate about teaching and learning. And how can I be passionate about something that I don't really believe in, that that isn't steeped in evidence? Um, so I think kind of in a way it kind of starts with me. When I think about the things that I have worked on with our staff and things I have introduced, they're all things where the evidence base has been really, really carefully researched first. And it's not been something just overnight or this looks good. Um, instructional coaching, for example, which we are currently rolling out across the school. Um, I think there's a little bit of buzz about it at the moment on Twitter and in the education community. But that's certainly wasn't the um, starting point for me it was about looking at the research of well, what are the best bets around CPD and then finding that instructional coaching is one of the the best uh, bets in terms of improving professional development and that's where I started not just that someone else was doing it and it looked good. Certainly I totally agree with that with what the best bets but actually are but there's a couple of really important notes that you made in there that I'd like to highlight and you mentioned right at the start of that that you've seen the damage that gimmicks have done and I suppose in that span seen kind of move up and down but I, mm -hmm. I can think back to the start of my career as well and mm -hmm. I was just it just drives me mad thinking about the damage that I did when I did that so and I think also 
also in my position, um, I look back and I cringe at some of the things that I did as a leader as well. You know, um, when I think about judgment, lesson observations, um, some of the things that we we introduced around um, in, in, um, yeah, inquiry-based learning with no real curriculum content, um, different lesson times, things like that. I do look back and I think, why did we spend our time doing those things where the evidence base just wasn't there? Um, and I think some of those things, especially things like judgment-based lesson observations, were incredibly damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I'm so glad that we've moved on to a much better position now. No, certainly. Those sort of judgment-based observations, as you say, were incredibly damaging to, to teachers and, and it, it kind of it stalled a lot of professional development. And you find, you hear a lot of people, I've heard a few people talk on this podcast, that they ended up finding a lesson that got outstanding and they would just reveal that out every time there was an observation. So there was no real development there. So it was important that you noted there about the evidence base behind things like instructional coaching as a performance development tool. And we're going to come back to a little bit about your ideas around performance management a little bit later on. Um, and, and you've shared before that having a clear vision is crucial. Can I ask you, Richard, how important is having a vision? What is your vision? So for me, having a vision was absolutely fundamental when I started. Um, I think the vision is about sharing your purpose. And as I kind of hinted at before, it's about sharing that why. If you want staff buy-in, they have to know what your why is. and that's that's you know all explained and encapsulated in your vision um and it's about having your big goal so that so that staff can understand that when you do put in place actions when you do bring in new strategies how does that fit into that wider goal and always coming back to that i think having a vision leads to a um a change in culture it leads to a development of higher expectations because you're all working towards this same goal um and for me, our teaching and learning vision had to come from, first of all, we're part of a trust. So it had to come from the trust um, vision, our co-op values. Um, but it also had to come from the school vision about, you know, what did what does my principal want for the school? Um, so for us, our vision was about um, ensuring that students met their potential through excellence in teaching and learning and also about developing a community where everyone has a passion for learning and we succeed together so that bit about everyone has a passion for learning obviously taps into the CPD element of the role that I do and underpinning that I use two really key quotes with staff and the first one is the really famous Dylan William one Um, every teacher needs to improve not because they're not good enough but because they can be even better and again that comes from um, sometimes there is a culture in schools where staff have been there a long time, that they're very experienced, that they don't need CPD, you know, that they're actually OK. And um, I really wanted to move away from that and say, you know, you might have been teaching 30 years, but that doesn't mean you can't get better. Um, you might have been graded outstanding at one point in your career, but that doesn't mean you can't get better. And, and really, really driving that vision about improvement. And, and there's another one that I really like as well from Rob Coe, Professor Rob Coe, who says, a great teacher is one who is willing to do what it takes to be more effective next year than this. And I just like that kind of that goal element of that quote um, that, you know, are you willing to put some work in to make sure that you're even better in a year's time than what you are now? Um, so, yeah, that our teacher learning vision is about high expectations 
um, and that we're all learning together. And I think when you look at our professional development program and introducing things like instructional coaching, all of those are small steps to that goal of um, having this community of excellence and learning together. And I think I mentioned before about how you're always coming back to that vision. So every CPD session that we do now, whether it's a twilight, um, an inset day, um, even middle leaders meetings and things like that, we will very often start by displaying the vision and starting with that and saying, right, well, you know, let's just recenter ourselves and refocus for a minute. What is it we want? What is it we want to achieve? Let's look back to our vision. Okay, let's make sure that the things that we introduce now actually feed into that vision and are going to help us. Um, another um, way that we have it as part of our just kind of school culture. So when we um, advertise for roles within school, um, I think, for example, recently we've been recruiting volunteer coaches for our instructional coaching program. And when they put in their, their kind of application of interest, if you like, um, you know, we said, you know, you should relate why you want to do this role to our teaching and learning vision. Um, and you should be show that you're totally on board with that and how you're working towards it yourself as an individual. So for me, vision is just absolutely crucial. And I love the thread that you've kind of developed there through everything to the kind of working with staff in groups PD. And I love that link that you gave there about volunteering to be a coach and staff having to demonstrate how they're living that vision. Mm-hmm. And some great quotes there. I've actually not heard the Rob Cole one about willing to do what it takes to mm-hmm. be even better next year. It's such a such a fantastic way to frame it in terms of getting mm-hmm. better. And I love that um, main vision of ensuring to meet their excellent learning and teaching. It's, that, it's our bread and butter. What can we use that, make that excellent? Can I ask you then, Rachel, how do you share this vision with staff? Is it through this regular can I bring it back up all the time? And can I, how, how do you make sure it's staff? Yeah, so it's just about regularly coming back to it and sharing it. Like I said, CPD sessions, meetings, just always starting with what is our teaching and learning vision? What is it we want to achieve? Um, and making sure that um, if we're discussing bringing in a new strategy, well, are, are, is this actually the best bet for our time? Does it fit into what our, our vision is intending for us to be? Um, is it what we should be spending our time on, really? So, yeah, constantly um, displayed and then used in CPD sessions all the time, I'd say. Right, I love that. I love how you keep going back to the same thing. And, and you mentioned it a little bit, this idea of recentering. It's all mm-hmm. it's always remembering before people sit down for me. And this is why we're here. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about it, it's all through this lens. And, and, I, and I love that idea. But I might steal that, <laughs> steal that for myself. But thank you. And can I then ask you then, how have you created a shared language for great teaching at Co-op Academy Walkden? So I mentioned kind of when I started um, in role as assistant principal, one of the um, one of the things that we had was this kind of culture of perhaps things being a bit gimmicky um, and teachers feeling really a bit confused. So I, I would have teachers saying to me, well, what, what does a good lesson look like? What are you looking for when you come in my room? And I I think part of that was the judgment based um, observation culture that had been present in the year before I took over um, in role. And I just wanted to completely move away from that. Um, One of the things I really wanted to do was break away with this association with good um, and relating it to what an Ofsted good lesson is. I just wanted to completely break that link. Um, And so but there obviously was a need there that staff wanted to know what they should be doing. Um, And I wanted to really tap into that. 
Um, there's a brilliant quote from Bruce Robertson um, who says, without shared language understanding, you might know what you are trying to achieve, but you don't know how to achieve it. So I really wanted to make sure that we drilled down and we had something really crystal clear for teachers that they knew what we were aspiring for them to do when they were planning lessons or um, when they were teaching lessons. And obviously, um, I went to the EF Great Teaching Toolkit and I did lots and lots of reading and research. And from that, we created our own academy guidelines and we call it um, Great Teaching at Co-op Academy Walkden. Um, we came up with 10 key aspects of great teaching and I did a period of staff consultation around this. So um, we talked to middle leaders um, and it was an SLT team. We, we talked about it. So those 10 aspects, they are summarised. So we have posters with the 10 aspects displayed, um, such as lessons are challenging, um, uh, literacy is a high priority in lessons, things like that. But we also have guidelines. So staff know. So it doesn't just say lessons are challenging. Staff know what that then looks like in their lessons. So it might, you know, they should be sharing the big picture of the lesson. There should be a challenging learning question for each lesson. You should be using challenging texts and materials. You should be encouraging students to get out of their comfort zone in tasks and, you know, think outside their comfort zones a little bit. So this kind of summary posters, but then there's also this guideline document. So when we introduced that, we were really, really clear to staff that this was not a tick list. I will never, ever go into your lesson and tick off whether you've done these 10 things or not. That's not what it's about. It's about aspirations. So you know, when you are doing your planning, these are sorts of things you should be having in mind. When you're in your classroom, are you focused on these things, which are evidence-informed that we you should be doing in the classroom? So they're guidelines for you to have in mind and be thinking about. And also, it's about that shared language. So when, I, when we give feedback to staff, when we do drop-ins, we will use that language. When we plan CPD, we will use that language. Um, when we are writing department development plans, we'll refer to the great teaching guidelines through, throughout that. So, again, like our vision, it's something we're always coming back to um, and using all the time in any of our documentation or in any of our professional development sessions. Um, so it's about demystifying what great teaching should look like as best as we can, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but as best as we can, what the best bets say about what teaching should look like, um, but not in any way a tick list. No, I certainly agree. It's like that idea that it's not a tick list, but I love how you've distilled that down. But I also love, what I loved about that is how you involved so many people. You can you mentioned you went around. Can you share a little bit more about that process? How did you get people involved and how did you share the, the research so that people could come to Kind of the conclusions that were kind of aligned to the best bets that the researchers. Um, so at the time, I shared kind of lots of the um, research that I was looking at. So like the Great Teaching Toolkit um, and some of the other um, research papers that I've been looking at, um, gave like reading lists, and we just kind of um, spoke about what were the fundamentals that we thought that all lessons should have, that all teachers should be working on. So um, middle leaders meeting, that's something that we, we we did. I did like a draft proposal of things that I thought were really important. And middle leaders in particular came back and said, actually, 
Um, I think we could expand this one or I think we need to change the wording. Um, I would say that there was no kind of definite like, no, that's not on the table. It was more about the nuance and exactly how that could best be communicated to staff. Um, There was lots of input about the guidelines about what that should look like. Um, So suggestions of what that might look like in the classroom or what that might look like in your planning. Um, And I really needed their help, middle leaders help in distilling that to staff because I could stand there and say it's not a checklist, but I wanted that to come from the middle leaders as well. I didn't want the middle leaders using it as a checklist. Um, I didn't want this to be associated with any sort of judgment around lessons at all. Um, So it was great to involve them as a team and help them. Um, have them help me with that process. Certainly, I love how you're involving them and getting it involved. So, can I? I want to dig a little bit deeper into this sharing of evidence between learning. A lot, a lot of um, colleagues say that their job is to read the research and distill it down mm-hmm. to make it easy for teachers. So, can I ask how have you made engaging with evidence as accessible? Again, I think this was like one of my biggest jobs when I first started because if I was going to start and saying, right, well, I've got this vision that you all should be involved in professional development, that you need to keep learning. And it's something that everyone should be doing, not just if you want a promotion. CPD is something we all should be doing. Then I knew I needed to make it as easy as possible for all staff to access. And for me, that came down to two things. It's about giving time and giving access. And we have tried to do both of those things. I think the time is one of these um, quandaries in education um, I think there are very few schools that get it right um, that give enough time for professional development and I would absolutely love to have more time um, for staff to be doing professional development and we're not there we're not at the point that I want it at yet but we are really trying to ensure that um, once a week um, subject teams meet and have time for subject professional development and then insets and twilights are spread throughout the year for Um, your kind of um, CPD that is for everybody in the whole school and then that you are uh, drilling down to more individual support through coaching and we're partway through the process of introducing instructional coaching. In terms of access, um, something that I set up um, about 15-16 months ago now after seeing um, a brilliant tweet from Claire Hill um, who's just fantastic and she had set up kind of um, I think hers is website based. I'm not quite sure, but basically like a portal for professional development where staff could drill into the areas that they were interested in and access webinars and articles and things. And I just thought this is fantastic. I need to do this. So I set up a Google classroom. We're a Google school, so very straightforward. And I sectioned it into areas like behavior, leadership, send, questioning, retrieval, et cetera. And gradually over the last year, I have filled that uh, Google Classroom with webinars. So I I register and I do a lot of webinars and those that let me share recordings, I will I will put that in podcast links. So your podcast features um, Darren throughout our professional classroom, as well as other good ones. Other other ones are available. Book summaries, reviews, posters. Um, we have brought into the walkthroughs pack- package. So walkthroughs are also accessible through our Google Classroom. Basically, anything CPD-wise that I think, oh, that would be useful, I put it on this Google Classroom. 
And um, again, that's not something it could just be just stuck there and never used. It's something we have to keep referring back to. So um, it's something we will often raise in line management meetings. We'll say to um, heads of departments, so um, how have you used the material on your Google Classroom recently? What it means is that if you're a head of department and you realise that your team um, are all struggling with perhaps retrieval practice, you can say to your team, right, well, I found this really good video on the Google Classroom. Um, I'm going to set it as an assignment for you. Can you all watch it? by next week and then we're going to spend the first part of next week's meeting discussing it together um it means that head of department and myself we can be responsive um, and it means that you're not trailing through emails looking for oh i know i did a webinar last year about that where is it everything's really neatly organized and accessible and all our internal cpd as much as possible is also recorded and um, put on that google classroom as well so we've now just created an induction area so all our new staff, we felt that induction was done really well if you started at school in September, but not so well if you started midway through the year. So as a new member of staff now, uh, rather than spending a day meeting various lead members of the school, we've all done like a recording of our induction um, process and that will sit on our Google Classroom as well. Um, all our voluntary breakfast sessions are recorded and put on there. And so it really is quite a big area now full of resources so I think in terms of access that's been really really good and we've also encouraged all our heads of department now have subject classrooms as well so they can do the same thing with any subject knowledge uh, webinars or podcasts or anything like that and again that's working really really well um, we also have quite an extensive CPD library um, and like you said my role is to be the gatekeeper so I read a lot anyway but I read pretty much every book that goes in the CPD library, which means that I can recommend. But it also means that um, it's well stocked. Um, I'm sure my bursar gets sick of me bringing the request for more books. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> we have a weekly <laughs> we have a weekly teaching and learning briefing, um, which we just started this year sharing one um, teaching and learning strategy. Um, nothing new. It's really, really important to emphasize that nothing is new in that briefing, but it's just one, like a five minute overview of a teaching strategy that staff might just have forgotten about or just need reminding about. And um, everything from chunking to cold call to pre teaching vocabulary. And um, tomorrow I'm doing building a culture of error and making it okay to make a mistake. And it's literally just one slide. Really, really just a quick five minute overview. Um, and again, sometimes I will um, draw attention to a blog or a research paper that will just aid that if anybody wants to read more. And we also have a weekly teaching and learning email where I share a blog of the week, um, which um, has been really, um, really enjoyed as well. I think um, quite successful. I do quite often get an email back um, saying, oh, that's really interesting. Um, we do a weekly breakfast meeting. Um, which is voluntary. And this is something we've only just started in the last academic year. Um, we just changed the way that we've done CPD. Um, and we decided that we wanted to have something weekly that staff could attend. But if they couldn't attend the breakfast session, it would be still completely accessible. And we asked our staff to attend a number of those over the year. Um, we don't take a register or anything like that, but it's just saying, we think this is important. We'd like you to choose the sessions that are most relevant to you 
Um, so we've done sessions on um, use of the voice, um, how to best use Google Classroom, um, how to motivate students, um, safeguarding, how to best use a teaching assistant in the classroom. Um, and we also can be really responsive. So um, we had a trust visit a while back where one of the pieces of feedback was that they felt that staff didn't always know how to respond once a student said, I don't know, in the classroom. So again, we ran a breakfast session on that, which was really good. And those sessions are led by a variety of staff, not just me, um, middle leaders, um, classroom teachers, support staff, um, and people can volunteer to do that. We just asked, of course, that evidence is at the heart of what's shared and they share the research and how that they've come to the strategy that they're sharing. Um, like I said, we ask that everything is filmed and put on the Google Classroom so it's accessible. We have a termly newsletter where we share a podcast of the term, a book of the term with a little book review, interviews with staff. Um, particularly, we do an interview with somebody who's done a professional um, qualification. So, um, people who are on MPQs, people who've done masters, um, somebody's just done a Senko qualification, things like that. Uh, and we spotlight good practice through that newsletter as well. And then the other group I've mentioned a few times, actually, a group of middle leaders. Um, we do regular CPD with them as well. Um, and over the last 18 months or so, the main way we've done that is through um, choosing a book and reading a chapter um, each time we meet. So we worked through uh, Mary Myatt's High Challenge, Low Threat last year, which was fantastic. Staff really, really responded well to that. And this year we're working through Adam Robbins' Middle Leadership Mastery book which again, really interesting. And all we ask that staff do is to read that chapter, to go and like look at any of the other links if they want to. And then I send out some questions for them to consider. Um, the first part of our middle leader meeting is basically discussion around the chapter and sharing people's thoughts. Um, and again, that's I, I count that as professional development. I think that's also a really, really useful um, piece of work. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a variety of ways that we kind of make um, the evidence accessible to staff. Um, I think going back to what I said earlier, we need to make it as easy as possible, that it's not something that staff are, are training through emails for or have to feel that they've got to come and ask for, but it's actually at their fingertips. And there are loads of other things they can um, dig into if they want to. You know, we have membership of National College, uh, we use Blue Sky Learning. Um, there's, there's lots of other things they can do, but the core of it is on this this professional development Google Classroom. Certainly, I love that. Just light bulbs are going in my head about doing that. And I think I've seen share that um, before, but I love how it's everything's in there. And I can imagine that being built up over time, especially recording your, your breakfast, um, your, your newsletters, your spotlight of staff. I love the idea of interviewing staff as well. Yeah. Just to share like what, what they're learning on the cues and so on. I think that just kind of subtly builds that culture when you're kind of... Mm -hmm sharing that and, and I love that idea and I love what you mentioned about induction this is something that I've mentioned a few times that about in some businesses there's in other sectors are so good at you're often mm. you know <laughs> arrive at the car park at quarter past eight but you're given a set of keys at 20 past eight and then your first class walking at quarter to nine and you're like oh no how do I do anything can you share a little bit yeah. more about this idea of inducting so it's actually something that I've been thinking a lot about um we find that we just generally have one insect day in September 
And what we found is that that day is pretty much taken up with the key staff messages for the year, maybe new strategies that are going to be introduced, uh, teaching and learning reminders, um, practical things that we want to introduce. And actually, if you're a new member of staff, that is really, really overwhelming. And then at the same time, you've got to kind of pick up your laptop, get your logins, um, find out what the basics of the behaviour policy are, all of these things. And um, so my principal and I have talked about an additional day for new staff in September where we do kind of the getting the logins and all the basic things first um, and then they have the inset day kind of just to actually take in the, the learning, if you like. We do do an induction day in the July as well for people starting in September. But I think um, at that point, they can't get their logins or do any of that kind of admin side. So I do think there's something to be done there. So that's something we're going to look at this year. But also, like I said, I think we're very good at doing it in September and realising what staff won't know. But. You know, staff also move at Christmas, at Easter, other points in the year. And I mean, obviously, I've never done it, but I can only imagine how out of your debt people must feel. Um, it would give me huge anxiety. Um, but I think if you could know that you could stagger the few weeks beforehand, just going through key videos. So uh, a 10, 15 minute overview of safeguarding and what our processes are, process are around safeguarding a 15-minute video on our great teaching guidelines and what we want you to do and what we don't want you to do, um, a 10, 15-minute video on how we do feedback and, again, how we want you to do that, what we don't want you to do, a 10, 15-minute video on our behaviour policy and how you log incidents and um, what we're looking for in terms of our approach, etc. If you could work through all of those things before you even enter the school building on your first day, I think you're going to be a much, much better prepared to do the job well. Um, so that's kind of our thinking. We're partway through the job, um, but I think hopefully we'll be there for Easter. And I just feel so much better about staff starting after Easter. Certainly. I'd love to hear how that goes, but it sounds so like such a great idea because I, I've started a couple of jobs halfway through the year and you're just going to, you have to hit the ground running and you're going to, going you're running in at people's doors how do i do this how do i do this when mm-hmm. i find this and so on but if you can have so much of that knowledge it kind of kind of lessens the load on, yeah. on yourself your own cognitive teach your classes with and i think going back to the recording aspect i think it's something that really only we just tweaked on in the pandemic i think it was one of the good things to come out of that whole time of home learning and doing cpd online because it makes so much sense to record your sessions um you know it, whether it's a twilight, an insert, because we do have staff that work part time. We do have staff off with illness. And for those staff to know that they can just watch the session and not have to, um, you know, go and find the member of staff whose sessions it, session it was and try to figure it out from the pe- presentation or whatever, that actually they know that they're not going to miss out. I think that's really, really important. I think it's one of the best things we've changed um, over the course of the pandemic. It certainly is a great um, addition to school and something that it seems so obvious, but the pandemic certainly mm. kind of recognised the power of all these sort of tools. So we've come to the last question. I'll have this wonderful conversation. I've taken so many notes, Rachel. I'm thoroughly <laughs> enjoying it. And can I ask you, um, how have you optimised performance management to staying ever informed? The main thing we've done with um, performance management is that we have introduced disciplined inquiry. 
which is something that I read about in the brilliant book, um, Putting Staff First by Johnny Utley and John Tomset, which I really highly recommend. Um, and they talk about this idea of discipline inquiry, which is a research project, but it's really, really specific. It's not just I'm going to research uh, questioning. It's, it's where you come up with a question that you're going to investigate in your teaching. And you have to be specific about the group of students you're going to do it with, um, the time period. Um, so we asked staff to phrase it as something like, and to investigate the effect of low level stakes testing on my uh, year 11 history set um, over a period of um, three months from Christmas to March, whatever. Um, and think about what you're going to do before this process, what you can do after the process to look at whether it's had any effect. And we asked staff to kind of decide on key areas in their department team. So the whole department subject team is doing a similar sort of project. So their, their area might be retrieval practice. And within that, they'll do slightly different projects. Um, again, we ask that what they do is not something absolutely huge. that They're going to really struggle to do you know, in the depths of mock marking, for example, but a, a small tweak to their teaching and to investigate whether it has any impact. Um, it doesn't matter if it doesn't have any impact or it goes wrong. That's It's about the process. And as part of that project, they have to do some reading. They have to engage with evidence. And we ask them to fill in a form to talk about what they've what reading they've done. And that's obviously an area where the Google Classroom comes into its own because we're able to point to webinars and um, things on there that staff can use. Um, so they document their reading, then there's a mid-year review, and then we do a review at the end of the year. And that's one objective that we ask staff to do is their performance management. Um, we also ask staff throughout their performance management process to ensure that they engage with CPD. Um, so not that their teaching is good or anything like that, but just that they engage with CPD. Um, and I think we will probably, as we roll out instructional coaching further next year, that the objective will simply be to engage with their coach, to engage with the process of instructional coaching, um, and that it's about engaging. Obviously, the process of instructional coaching is about engaging with what the evidence says works in the classroom. I love that idea of Disney Quay. Can I ask, does that, when the teachers submit their research question, is that to last a full academic? Yeah, so they can have a shorter time period within um, the discipline inquiry. The objective is over the whole year. Uh, so some staff will do it over the full year. Some staff will say, actually, I want to just draw upon this particular pre-mock period. And um, then they might replicate it with another class um, later on down the line. So what, however they do it, there will be a really clear time frame so that they can look at um I say data, but I don't necessarily mean data. It can be people voice, for example, soft data before and after the project. And then do these, so if I, if I say I did something about using retrieval practice within my lesson with my year nine, is that success or, or my learnings from my research, does that get shared with the wider staff team? So one of the things that we do on one of the last um, subject team meetings um, in July is that we are start to present in their subject teams what they've done. It's a really, really nice afternoon where staff just get five, 10 minutes they don't have to do a presentation or anything like that. It could literally just be them talking for five minutes. This is what I wanted to investigate. Um, this is what I found out. This is what worked. Um, will I use it again next year? Will I tweak it? Do I think this is amazing? I'm going to put, implement it with all my classes next year. Um, 
and getting staff to question each other, really. So it's a really nice session of just sharing what they've done. Um, and all that we ask for their performance management is just that they have um, done some sort of review of the process, that they have um, thought about the process and whether it's been useful um, whether they will use it again so it's not about the success of the project itself if that makes sense no certainly I love that it's such a wonderful way to get your eyes on um, and perhaps going back to that Rob Coke and Dylan Moyne mm-hmm. quote that you shared right at the start about kind of try striving to make an impact year on year and that inquiry will really help kind of focus the mind on trying I'm going to try this and see if it works and if mm-hmm. it does work I'm going to roll it out across everyone well that brings us to the end of the interview section Rachel I've got my quick fire questions that I'd love to ask you that's questions I ask every guest before we do that um, I've taken pages and pages of notes I'm sure the listeners will uh, want to I want to do the same and if anyone wants to uh, kind of pick your brains and ask you a, a few more questions to if anything's piqued their interest can you point them in the direction of how they can make contact with you and direct them towards mm-hmm. your social media channels so I don't know if you've noticed but I'm absolutely passionate about talking about teaching and learning so I would absolutely love anybody to get in contact and to ask me any questions um so my twitter handle is at mrs ball ap so that's probably the best way to contact me um, um Brilliant. Thank you. I encourage people to tell. I've loved this. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now my quick fire round. Um, of late, it's not been very quick, but feel free to make it quick or expand on your answers as you go. Are you ready for these questions? I'm ready. So, Rachel, what are you reading currently? Um, so if you do follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I am a huge reader, um, really passionate reader. I'm anxiously awaiting the arrival of Amy Forrester's book at the moment on pastoral leadership, but it hasn't arrived, unfortunately. So I'm halfway through um, a book called Betty by Tiffany McDaniel, which is um, it's like a coming of age story about a girl who's part Cherokee um, in the 1960s. Um, just a really interesting fiction book. Um, but I read everything and anything. I try and rotate what I read so I'll read a history book and then I'll read a teaching and learning book and then I'll read a fiction and so on but yeah absolutely love reading right I love that thanks so much for sharing there and my second question to you is what is your current professional development so me personally um I think this year my professional development focus has been the introduction of instructional coaching in school and reading around that and how to best implement it in the school um, so we um, have brought into Step Lab, um, which I know that you um, know quite a lot about and you've interviewed people about before. Um, and we're on our second wave of a kind of 18 month process of introducing that into school. So for me, it's been about um, making sure that I train coaches in the best way and that I utilise the team of coaches um, to do the best they can with people who want to be coached in school. At the moment, we're still at the stage of volunteer coaches and volunteer coachees, um, but we want to be in the position by September that every single member of staff, no matter what their position, is being coached. So that's really, really exciting, but has meant quite a lot of time for me just investing in getting that right um, and not rushing into something. That's why I said it has been an 18-month process um, because it has got to be done well. It's important that we take our time over that and build it in and get that culture right. So it's, it's brilliant that you mentioned that. Thank you so much. And my final question to you, Rachel, is what do you love most about being a teacher? I think there was a teacher tap question about this recently, actually. Um, it's actually something I have been thinking about. 
For me, I could not do a dull job. Um, I have worked in some jobs, um, careful what I say, but I have worked in some jobs that I found incredibly boring and teaching is never boring. Every day is different. And I, I just absolutely love that. I love working with students, um, seeing the penny drop with them when they, they, they click with an idea, um, getting to know them, to see their personalities, to see them grow and change and, and uh, learn more. Um, I love working with staff as well um, and getting alongside them and helping them develop, engaging with evidence, engaging with teaching and learning. Um, and like I said earlier, I'm still really passionate about my subject as well. So um, teaching history every day is something that I still absolutely love and gets me up in the morning. I love that. What a way to close the interview. Thank you so, so much for sharing. And that brings us to the end, Rachel. Thank you so, so much for coming on to the Becoming Educated podcast to share your role as a teen learning lead. And uh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I, you know, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, Darren, and um, have listened to many, many episodes myself that I've been interviewed tonight. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Becoming Educated. Before you go, can I ask for a few things that will only take a minute? I'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag becomingeducated and tag me on Twitter at DN Leslie. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth.